Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. At the end of the episode, I will play two short stories from Untold Mayhem. We've got The Last in Line and The Feeling is Back. Both of those short stories were sparked by songs with that same name. So that's how a lot of my short stories developed. Oftentimes they would have nothing to do with the song, but I enjoyed the titles, sparked a story idea, just went from there. So what do we got? The Last in Line, that's a Dio song, and the feeling back is Suicidal Tendencies. It's definitely into both of those bands for a very long time. All right. This week, well, last week I talked about needing to focus on one thing. I did a pretty good job of that this week. I focused on a dark fairy tale, made a lot of progress, but it can still be pretty overwhelming, not overwhelming, not depressing, but I don't know. This is what I got to still input. So these are all my notes. And then this is, once I have all this in, the first half of it I feel is really, really strong. I'll have to do one more pass on the second half real quick. But then the entire story is going to be pretty solid. This is, I'm talking about the main path of the story in A Dark Fairy Tale. Then I'll give it to Evan. He will put his take back on it, fix it up, make it even better, and then give that back to me. So we'll play around on that for a little bit. So I think maybe I have another week or two of this, but then I need to start working on the death scenes. I believe I'm going to give him a rough idea of uh, what I think the scenes are, and then he'll say yes or no, kind of like I did with Duncan, and then I'll get it back, and then I can start really going into it. So that's been good. Jiu-Jitsu, I did not focus on this week. I took off a lot of days. I didn't go Friday. I think I don't think I went Friday morning. can't remember. It's been a while. Maybe I did go. Shit. Goddamn. I need to stop smoking weed. Anyhow, no, I definitely didn't go on Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday. And in fact, I probably wouldn't have gone today if Coach hadn't asked me to open up for open mat. I wasn't, I've been kind of taking it easy. I went to a Nuka doctor this week, get checked once every month or once every two months. But it was awesome. I was in alignment. Very happy to see that. That means that the last six weeks of jujitsu did nothing to my neck. So my body could handle it. That felt really good. We didn't, I haven't done a lot of chokes, but there have been some. So, and even just the constant rolling around, I was a little bit worried about that. So definitely feel better about that and feel safer. Makes me feel like it's a good idea. And then also my shoulders were really hurting. So this week was rehab. I also went to an acupuncturist. That helped a lot. I really enjoyed doing that. I try to do that once every two weeks if I can. And then swimming in the pool rehab for the knee definitely helped a lot with that i first couple days i couldn't even really do much with my shoulder and i was okay with that though i was like okay i just need to take it easy i can do what i can do i didn't push it it's easy to think like oh well i'm just in the pool and so this pain is no big deal but i'm like no that's not too smart but i took advantage of not being able to use my arms or not my right arm at least and I just went harder on treading water, really thinking about what I was doing, what muscles I'm working on with my legs. And then I went and I grabbed my eight pound weight and I was holding that behind my back. And that intensified things. It made it much more difficult. <laughs> it was hard to stay up after a while, especially after treading water for a very long time. But it was fun. It kept almost drowning and uh, it was enjoyable. I was playing that with my son yesterday. 
uh, didn't have him put it behind his back. But I, again, I was teaching him, like, look, dude, you're never in any trouble here. You're never in any danger. At any point, you could let this weight go, but that you have all this extra air that, you know, when you're underwater, oftentimes it feels like you need to gasp. You, you know, you're out of air. It's like, no, you're cool, dude. Just come up, just sip that air. So it was cool for him to see that he could do that in that, because when we first started, he saw what I was doing. He was too intimidated by it. Didn't think he would, could do it. I was like, well, how about if we try it like this and I'll be right there to support you and look, you can do it. Next thing you know, he's doing it. Another thing I did this week was listen to the Wild West audiobook. Stephen Barnett did an excellent job on that. He did it very fast too. We listened to that. We approved that. And now, just waiting for that to be released on ACX, also need to put it up on Find A Way. That way, it will be everywhere on Spotify, Apple, everywhere you can get an audiobook. That's where you can find it. That has two different versions. The Try Not To Die audiobooks are different than your regular audiobook. I don't suggest listening to it while you are driving or occupied. because You have to pay attention for making choices like, okay, if you want to do this, then skip to this chapter. If you want to do this, then skip to that chapter. So that can be kind of a pain in the ass, but there are two versions on each audiobook. The interactive version where you have to choose which chapter you want to hear, or you can just listen through the full story in the survivor version. So not as long, doesn't have the death scenes, but some people would prefer that. That should be out soon. This week, my dark and disturbing collection of short stories, which includes 25 Perfect Days, Twisted Reunion, and Untold Mayhem is only $2.99 on Amazon. Three books for the price of $3. That's pretty damn good. I think it's a little over 80 short stories between them all. That's a hell of a deal. Instead of paying $6.66, you get it for $2.99. That collection is on sale through the 23rd. So act fast. This is going to be the last month that I am having my stuff exclusive on KDP. I'm not totally convinced I'm going to have all... 16 or however many books I have off of there and going wide, but I'm pretty sure. So I already did try to die at grandma's house, trying to die in Fright Side, trying to die in the pandemic. In two more weeks, I believe I am switching over the rest. I'm excited about reaching a larger audience. So that's what's going on this week. Not a whole lot. Next week, I will be working on trying to die in the dark fairy tale. I'm excited about this weekend too. On Saturday, we get to do a 10th Planet Whittier Jiu-Jitsu birthday party for my son. So he invited a lot of kids from school, all his friends. Their brothers and sisters can come on the mat. Parents can come on the mat. We're going to just have a cool little fun jiu-jitsu lesson and party afterwards so looking forward to that i think that should be cool other than that i think it's just gonna be nice and relaxing so hope you guys have an incredible week too let's go out on these two short stories the first one and these are off of untold mayhem the first one is the last in line i'll put the narrators down below because there are a lot of narrators in this book and i never remember who did what they did an excellent job i love the variations but I don't remember. All right, so we have the last in line and the feelings back. Hopefully you guys dig it. I think next week will be the last week with this one. And then maybe, who knows? I don't know if we'll go to the Wild West or we'll do something fun. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you later. Peace. Last in line. Warren Zeller clenched his fists as he stood at the back of the line that wound its way through the dark alley. He'd been the last in line all his life, 
in elementary school. Everything was done in alphabetical order. In junior high, before his growth spurt, he was picked last for every sport. In high school, he was the last guy to kiss a girl, and last by far to get laid. When he grew older and realized that no one gave two shits about him, Warren took fate into his own hands and joined the Cabrera Cartel, one of the most feared organizations on the East Coast. Sure, for the first couple of years, he was always less to benefit, but as the sole white guy in a Colombian organization, that was to be expected. In the beginning, they fed him table scraps and only allowed him glimpses of the beautiful whores the cartel shared like other families might share a remote control. He was the last to pick from the spoils of any robbery and considered himself lucky whenever he got a taste of uncut cocaine. But Warren persevered and undertook every assignment with such enthusiasm and conviction that soon he was respected and even feared by the same men giving him the commands. No one tortured and killed like Warren, and those that did not know of Warren's reputation could take one look at his hardened face and realize they should stay the fuck out of his way. But somehow, despite all the advances he'd made in his life, here he was once again, the last in line. Even though Warren couldn't remember why he was in this ridiculously long line, he wasn't about to tolerate it. He'd spent his whole life clawing his way to the top, and he wasn't about to wait behind a bunch of pathetic losers. Warren stepped to the side of the unmoving mass and peered down the dark alley, unable to see the head of the line. At first, he had thought they were waiting to get into an exclusive nightclub, but half of the people in line were degenerates in ratty clothing. In harsh contrast, many others wore business suits, and the remainder looked like average suckers you'd see walk in the street. This wasn't the first time that Warren had regained consciousness without being able to remember what he was doing or how he had gotten there. That was one of the drawbacks of using so much blow. He hated when this happened, but the journey was so much more enjoyable when his head was in a white cloud. When he was high, he didn't think about his repulsive face. He didn't think about his tiny cock. He didn't think about how the others in the cartel laughed at him behind his back because they were too afraid to do so in front of him. All he thought about was the next job and how good it would feel to end that person's life. Sometimes he'd even get hard when he considered new, exciting, and oh-so-painful ways to kill. Fists still clenched, Warren shouldered past the scrawny man in front of him. He didn't look to the guy for an okay. He didn't say, excuse me. He simply pushed ahead, knowing that the guy would either be a wimp and let it slide, or he would open his mouth and get a fist rammed down it. Predictably, the pussy didn't say a word. Neither did the next five guys standing silently in line. As he moved forward, Warren checked their faces, hoping to jar his memory. It wouldn't do for him to get inside wherever they were headed and not remember who he was there to kill. Upset at himself for forgetting the identity of his target, Warren bumped the big leather-clad biker in front of him. The six-foot-six giant turned around and glared at Warren. Not one to back down from a confrontation, Warren stared back and waited. 
When the big man broke eye contact, Warren said, Tell me where we're going and how long you've been in line. A mocking smile crept across the biker's face. You're standing in line and you don't know why? Without warning, Warren threw a vicious roundhouse, cracking the guy's jaw with a loud snap and dropping him to the trash-strewn concrete. With the spectators too scared to stop him, Warren launched steel-toed kicks into the giant's face until it was unrecognizable. No one said a word as the wet thuds muffled the sound of breaking bones. Warren stopped the attack and walked down the line just waiting for some other asshole to question him. It didn't take long before a punk in a cheap pinstripe stuck out his arm and said, Where do you think you're going? The guy obviously hadn't been close enough to see the savage beating Warren had just handed out. But that was no excuse. When someone poked their nose where it didn't belong, they had to pay the price. Warren hooked his arm over the guy's forearm and jerked backward, snapping his elbow, bending it in a direction God never intended. Before the guy could scream... Warren slammed his forehead into the guy's mouth, knocking out several teeth. Not one to leave a job unfinished, Warren bashed the guy's head into the brick wall until it was the consistency of a rotten cantaloupe. Warren wiped blood and brain matter onto his slacks and shouted down the line, Who else thinks I should stay at the back of the line, huh? Which one of you pussies doesn't want me cutting a head? He glared at the line daring someone to say something. Instead, everyone lowered their heads in submission. Taking his time, Warren stalked down the dark alley, hoping someone would challenge him. He also hoped his mind would clear and he could remember why he was in the goddamn line in the first place. As he neared the entrance, where guards were slowly letting people through a red door, Warren finally remembered the identity of his target, Bobby Mendoza had intercepted two of the cartel's shipments, containing over two million in cash and coke. Warren picked up his pace, strode up to the larger of the security guards, and demanded to be admitted. The guard held up his hands and smiled. I've got no problem with that. He pointed over Warren's shoulder and said, But that guy might... Anticipating a sucker punch, Warren turned with his hands up. It was Bobby, patiently waiting at the front of the line. He recognized Warren, but didn't seem concerned in the least. He also didn't reach for a weapon, almost as if he had already accepted his impending death. Wanting a fair fight was never one of Warren's weaknesses. In his line of work, it didn't matter if your target was ready. It didn't matter how you won. This wasn't some duel out in the desert. You take your target out quick, before he knows what hit him. When the slightest error could end up leaving you dead, permanently injured, or in prison, you couldn't waste time on ethics. Bobby was one hell of a knife fighter, and it would be smart to keep out of reach. This job required one well-placed bullet and a quick escape, leaving eyewitnesses confused and scared. Warren reached for his waistband, but his 40 wasn't in the holster. It didn't make any sense. Warren would never leave the house without his piece, and he couldn't remember dropping it. His stomach clenched in anticipation of a plunging knife. 
but the strike never came. Bobby stood motionless and stared at Warren with vacant, resigned eyes. Warren threw a crushing elbow across Bobby's face, sent him stumbling. A crowd formed behind Bobby, who held his nose to stop the blood flow. Warren reached down for his ankle holster, but his backup wasn't there either. Bobby held up his hands and said, Hold up, man. There's no need to do this again. Go on in, Warren. You deserve to go ahead of me anyway. Warren now noticed that Bobby's once white dress shirt was stained crimson and riddled with over half a dozen bullet holes. A fuzzy memory of knocking Bobby to the ground and emptying his gun into him left Warren speechless. At first he thought it was a dream, but Warren now clearly remembered standing over Bobby, firing round after round into him. I killed you, Warren said, confused. No shit. What are you doing back? Who says I'm back? I'm just waiting my turn. Warren glanced at the red door and the two guards standing on either side, beckoning Warren to enter. For what? He turned back to Bobby. What's in there? The place you've been hurrying to get to? All your life you've worked toward getting here, and now it's finally your turn. By all means, you should go ahead of me. Warren replayed the memory. After shooting Bobby, he had sat down on the curb and dropped his backup 38 onto the street. It wasn't like him to stay around after a murder, especially such a noisy one. But he was lying down on the cold sidewalk. His chin dropped to his chest. There were several punctures in his torso. The hilt of Bobby's blade stuck deep between his ribs. Warren shook his head to clear the memory. The knife was still lodged in his heart. He ripped it out and tossed it down the alley. One guard called his name while the other opened the door, a wave of heat smacking Warren in his face. The larger guard smiled and motioned Warren forward. The feeling's back. Tiny flickers of energy tease the tips of my fingers, the tingling sensation the strongest it's been since I first noticed it three days ago. The feeling is back. There's no denying it. This chair is painful to sit in, the hard oak digging into my back, but it's the only piece of furniture in the entire house I can get out of without assistance. I put aside my discomfort and concentrate on the ends of my fingers. It isn't my imagination. I'm regaining the use of my hands and arms. Life's about to change drastically, and I can't fucking wait. The rickety TV tray is nestled beside the chair, ready to topple over if I rock too much. All that's on it is a journal I can never put my true feelings in, and my Xanax bottle with the childproof cap. Complete overkill, seeing how I can't pop the top off a can of Pringles. I don't need a clock to tell me it's way past pill time, and my stomach won't stop grumbling because all I've had is a tiny breakfast bar. Donna should have been back from the supermarket, but I'm betting she stopped by Hamburger Heaven to visit her new friend, 
Jenny. She's been doing that a lot lately. My anxiety has been through the roof the last few days, and having the bottle just sitting there only makes it worse. Plus, I need to take a piss. But if I'm going to be honest, those aren't the real reasons I'm upset she left me home like a newly housebroken dog. It's because I've been afraid I'd jinx myself if I told her the feeling is back. But that's just a stupid superstition. I'll tell her today, as soon as she gets home. My low back's begging for me to get up and stretch, my bladder demanding I go to the bathroom. I refuse and sit still, promise myself I'll only wait another five minutes. Having to piss makes me picture the terry cloth towel Donna attached to the rim of the tub. Not being able to wipe my own ass is bad enough, but having to straddle the tub and drag myself back and forth on that towel is beyond humiliating. Donna says she'd never tell a soul, but that doesn't really make it any better. The crunch of Donna's Lexus pulling into the driveway helps me to feel more forgiving. Sure, it sucks rubbing myself raw on a piece of glued-down terry cloth, but cleaning my ass can't be one of her favorite duties. And I never tell her this, but if our roles were reversed, I know where I'd be when it came time for her mess. The feeling is back, and I'll be able to tell her soon. That's all that matters now. She won't have to be my arms anymore, won't have to wait on me night and day. The Lexus turns off, and Donna's wooden clogs clunk off the concrete. Her clomp, clomp, clomp up the stairs has me imagining a Clydesdale coming to my rescue. She obviously isn't everything I'd want in a wife, but like they say, beggars can't be choosers. And I know better than anyone else that men with two useless arms are never choosers. The knob rattles because she'd locked the door, even though I always ask her to leave it unlocked in case I have to leave quickly because of a fire or some other emergency. It's safe out here, a neighborhood where no one locks their doors. No one except my Donna. There's a loud bang on the doorframe. Tear Bear, she calls out sweet as rancid honey. Tear Bear, open the door, will ya? That can't believe you keep calling me that feeling surges through me. It's not just the name, even though I absolutely hate it. She has the keys and two good arms to use them. But you can't tell that to a woman who just gave up her job and used half of her inheritance to buy a house for some cripple she'd only just met. The negative thoughts won't help, so I bend forward at the waist and bite the rope dangling from the ceiling. Like a well-trained pit bull, I pull myself out of the chair and head for the kitchen. I brace against the door and raise my knee, poised to knock the deadbolt back. Donna bangs on the door and shouts my name. The fingers on my right hand jerk into a fist, but return to their useless state so fast I question whether I imagined it. My hand's just hanging, but I can feel the faintest pulse in my fingertips. The feeling is back, stronger than ever, and not even Donna can ruin that. In my most pleasant voice, I say, It'll only be a second. It takes all my concentration to block out the metal digging into my kneecap, but I release the lock and take a step back. Donna opens the door and greets me with a grin, half of a cheesy fry protruding from the corner of her mouth. In one hand is a shopping bag, 
and the other a grease-soaked brown paper bag whose saggy bottom is going to rip any second. She wobbles into the kitchen and sets down the groceries, the reek of her Estee Lauder triggering my headache. She gulps the fry and gives me a peck on my cheek, smearing her bright red lipstick so I'll have to beg her to wipe it off. She tosses the brown bag on the counter and says, Stopped by to see Jenny and picked you up a burger. Thanks, but I'm trying to watch my weight, I say, staring at her calculating eyes, afraid any glance at her double chin, triple belly, or thunder thighs will make her think I'm judging. The top of the bag's open, but Donna slices through the soggy bottom with her hot pink fingernail. Your loss... She pulls out the double bacon cheeseburger and says, I forgot you were trying to get back to your fighting weight. Got any bouts lined up? I keep my mouth shut, watch her stuff hers, a large glob of grease squeezing out the corner and dripping onto her too tight shirt. I step back and keep the smile on my face, wondering if I can clench my fist and hold it long enough for her to see. For someone who'd spent most of her life as a caretaker, it seems she'd be more thoughtful. She hadn't been this hateful before we got married, so I'll write it off as resentment and do my best to keep my temper in check. No, I don't plan on fighting again, but I've got to make sure I watch what I'm eating. Walking only burns so many calories and... I know, I know, she mumbles around the burger. Donna pulls a two-liter Diet Coke from the fridge and drinks straight from the bottle. She smacks her lips and says, I still got groceries in the car. Do me a favor and bring them in. Is the trunk open? Donna nods and pours the rest of the Coke into a large plastic cup. I tow open the kitchen door and head outside, biting my tongue. I can't let her ruin my mood, and I need to consider what would happen if I'm wrong about the feeling. What if it goes away? In the back seat, there's a crumpled brown bag, the bottom of it still wet with grease. I don't care if she wants to keep eating that crap, but I don't want to hear her bitching about not losing any weight. A little exercise like getting these bags wouldn't kill her either. The trunk is barely cracked open. If I try pushing it open with my knee, I risk it snapping shut. But if I ask Donna to open it, I'll never hear the end of it. My right hand hangs by my side like it's feeling something in my pocket. I concentrate as hard as I can, and the tips of my fingers curl. My fist closes and opens. For the first time in over a year, my arm bends at the elbow. It's almost like I'm watching someone else as my hand goes under the trunk's lid and nudges it up. The trunk only rises a few inches, but enough so I can get my knee under and raise it all the way. I'm tempted to see if I can haul a bag of groceries, but opening the trunk has left me drained. I bend at the waist and fish the handles of one of the bags into my mouth. There are five more, so I grab another. With the handles secured in my mouth, I lift them out of the trunk and head toward the kitchen. The bags bounce off my chest and the handles dig deep into the corners of my mouth as I climb the stairs. I'm two steps from the kitchen counter when the bag hanging to my right rips. A carton of Rocky Road ice cream, two boxes of Hot Pockets, and a bag of frozen chicken wings smash on the floor. 
I swing the intact bag onto the counter and say, I'm sorry. Donna turns around, the last bit of burger clamped between her fingers, the look of irritation I'd grown accustomed to. Instead of pointing out that it wouldn't have happened if she'd done it herself, I say, at least nothing broke. Donna polishes off the burger, wiping her hands on her jeans. I still gotta pick them up. She bends over with a sigh. I'll get the rest of the bags. You sure? She sets the spilled food onto the counter. Just go, go watch TV and let me do everything. Without a word, I turn and head out of the kitchen. I shouldn't have snapped at you, Donna says, her way of saying sorry. I'll put the food away and bring you your lunch. I head for the hallway and say, it's no big deal, hiding the fact that I'm seething. The bathroom door is closed even though she knows better. Tired of being a nuisance and relying on her for everything, I will both hands forward, surprised to see them moving so soon after the trunk. My hands grab the sides of the knob and turn until the latch clicks free. I don't shout and brag about it, just enter the bathroom, wonder if I have the strength in my fingers to peel off that dingy strip of terry cloth attached to the rim of the tub. That little piece of shit-stained fabric sums up the last six months of my handicapped life, and I want more than anything to rip it free and tear it into a thousand bits. But that will have to wait. Normally I'd have to lift my leg and catch the bottom of my basketball shorts on the hooked wire Donna installed for just that purpose. Instead, I concentrate on my dangling right hand, curl my index finger around the fabric, and raise it so I can piss on my own. Excited by my accomplishment, I drop my shorts before the pee trickles out, but even as the small circle of urine spreads on the front of my shorts, I can't help but smile. The feeling is back, and there's no stopping it. I close the door and head for my chair, ease into it, barely aware I'm using my left hand to steady myself. I imagine the new recliner I'll buy, one of those cushy leather jobs that'll wrap itself around me like a giant marshmallow. Donna's still in the kitchen, slapping together a sandwich of peanut butter and strawberry jelly on white bread, which she swears tastes twenty times better than wheat. I glance at my Xanax, thrilled I won't need them again after today. She comes over with the paper plate and huge cup of Coke, and I put on my best smile. She sets it on the TV tray, pulls over the steel-reinforced chair so it's facing me, close enough so she can feed me, wipe up, and treat me like a helpless infant. Instead of sitting in her chair, Donna plops on the armrest of mine. Before we tip over, she scoots back and puts her weight on me. Not aware, or maybe just not caring, that I can barely breathe, she smothers me with a hug and whispers that she loves me. Me too, I say, being sure not to breathe too deeply. This close, her perfume does little to mask her poor hygiene. Donna isn't very fond of bathing, and the black rings filling the fat folds of her neck are making me nauseous. Donna squeezes me again. Did you see I made your favorite? She says, 
as her giant boobs press against my face and strands of her oily hair stick to my forehead. Having to eat something all the time doesn't automatically make it your favorite, but I keep quiet, wishing I could bring my trapped arm up and push her away. Trying to sound sincere, I say, Thanks. Would you mind getting me a drink to go with them? Donna squeezes me one last time before heaving herself to her feet. She lifts her cup off the tray and brings it to my lips. Here you go, take a sip. I pull my head back. That's not diet, is it? She takes her time before answering like she was thinking of lying. A little won't hurt you. I hate to be a pain, Donna, but I hate that stuff. Donna sighs and slams the cup onto the tray, drops of the sticky soda splashing out and landing on the Xanax and writing journal. Are you serious? I've been running errands all day. Please, I say, wishing she wouldn't make me beg. I have a hard time taking my pill with that stuff. I don't see how it's any different. Trust me on this one. Donna's face hardens into a scowl. She's about to say something, but I beat her to it. I've got some incredible news for us, and... What? She asks with the excitement of a child. What is it? I want everything to be right before I tell you. Could you get that drink for me? Donna heads for the kitchen, her legs swishing together as she waddles away. This had better be good. It's better than good. I flex my fingers and watch her as she searches for a clean cup. Just like I figured it would, it takes her more than a minute to get my drink, leaving me plenty of time to gather my thoughts and see just how much I can do with my hands. Shortly, she is standing there with my drink. So, what is it? I nod toward her chair and tell her to have a seat. I'd like you to write it down for me. Donna says, No problem, just tell me what it is. You'll see. I wait for her to pick up my journal and the pen clipped to it. Our lives are about to change. Donna puts pen to paper. Did you win the lottery? What the hell is it? She asks impatiently. It feels good to finally be in the driver's seat, to have something she wants. Let's just say it's good enough to deserve a toast. What do you say? Donna clinks our glasses together and puts mine to my lips for a sip before gulping down half of hers. Here's to good news. God knows we can use it. Remember, word for word, I motion at the journal. Start with a fresh page, please. This is special. Donna nods and tells me to hurry. The feeling's back and stronger than ever. Donna looks up from the journal. What feeling? Instead of answering her, I continue my speech. I can't remember the last time I felt like this, but the pain is so intense. Donna gasps and sets down the journal so she can pick up the bottle of pills. I totally forgot. She struggles to get the cap free. Here you go. It's fine. Just put the pills down, Donna. I'll have one when we're done with this. You sure? Positive. Can I go on? 
Donna sets the bottle down, reads what she has on the paper, and looks up. The feeling. It's in your hands? I smile. I can't wait to open this damn bottle. I'll do it soon. I'll take off the top, reach in, pull out one pill after another, stick them all on my tongue, and wash them down with a drink of water from a glass I filled. A glass I held. I can get one for you real quick. I ignore her and wait for her to take another drink before I say, It feels so good to know I will never have to depend on anyone again. When Donna's pen stops moving, I ask if she got it all down. You feeling okay? You're starting to sweat. Donna wipes her slick forehead with the back of her arm. I'm fine. Just got a little dizzy. Tell me that last part again. I repeat the sentence, watching her pen shake ever so slightly as she writes down my words. She often pretends to be sick to get sympathy, but I know she's not faking now. Can you finish? I'd really like to get this down, I say as gently as possible. She looks up from the paper, her eyes filled with tears. Are you telling me that you don't need me anymore? You don't want me? Is this your way of leaving me? No, darling, it's not that at all. This is good news. I'll finally be able to do things for you. A shiver courses through her, the fat folds rippling. She continues as if she hadn't heard my response. I gave up everything for you. Everything. My job, my friends. You're upsetting yourself over nothing. Slow down and take a drink, I say. Donna, who looks ready to lose her lunch, polishes off the rest of her coke and sits there, staring past me. Aren't you happy for me? I ask, bringing her attention back. Her pupils fight to stay focused on my face. I am just worried, she says, her words starting to slur. Write this down word for word, and then you'll be done. Once Donna's ready, I say, no one will ever have to worry about me again. I'll finally be free from this miserable life. The pen is all over the paper, but even upside down, I can read that the sprawling chicken scratch accurately reflects my words. That's it. You can put the pen down. The pen falls to the floor. Donna looks at the journal. Can't read it. One last favor, the last one I ever ask, I swear. She sets both arms on the TV tray to steady herself, her pupils completely dilated jumping all around. Give me my pill. Then you can go to bed. Donna reaches for the bottle and knocks it over with the back of her hand. Concentrate, Donna. She uses one hand to steady the bottle and the other hand to pick it up. Donna unscrews the cap. She sticks her finger into the opening and pulls out half of a pill capsule, sets it on the tray. This one broke. Try another. With her eyes half closed, Donna blows out a breath and reaches into the bottle, pulls out three more empty capsule shells. 
They screwed up, she says, as she dumps the rest of the bottle onto the tray, broken shells spilling everywhere, but no trace of the powder they once held. I say, we'll have to call the pharmacy and complain. Donna sways back and forth in her chair, closing and then reopening her eyes. Struggling to get out each word, she says, I got it yesterday. They were fine. I scratch the side of my head. You sure about that? Your hand, she says, before collapsing onto the floor. The bottle rolls toward me and plunges off the edge of the TV tray. I nearly reach out and grab it, but it won't do to put my prints on the bottle I couldn't possibly have ever held. I slip on the pair of latex gloves I'd taken from the bathroom and hidden in my shorts. Donna used to say that a guy with no arms could never have everything a man with both arms had. That might be true, but I have something others in my position would envy. An airtight alibi. There isn't a soul in town who isn't aware of my handicap. Not one person out there who doesn't shake their head when they see me and then laugh when I'm out of range. Everyone would swear what a nice guy I am, and no one would suspect I'd be capable of doing anyone harm. I drop to a knee and pick up a pill shell that had fallen. Before I get up, I hold my hand under Donna's nose to confirm she's no longer breathing. If I were to call 911 right away, they'd probably be able to save her. I feel kind of guilty grinning about that. I scoop up the rest of the pill capsules and place them in my pocket. I tear out each of the journal pages prior to Donna's suicide note, then head to the kitchen to start up the stove. There's some great material in my hands, but I'd be stupid to keep them. The journal pages and the pill capsules are no more. The gloves flush down the toilet. I take off out the front door for my daily walk, the time for me to greet my neighbors and let the world see what a miserable life I lead, unable to do anything for myself. None of them will suspect a thing. No one will be able to tell the feeling had come back, and no one will wonder why I decided to pick up and leave town soon after I found out my wife killed herself. I keep the walk short, but it's long enough for the feeling to completely vanish, my arms and hands useless once again. I'm not discouraged, though, and I'm not surprised. The feeling never stays long, but the nice thing is that it always comes back. <laughs>